Yeah, we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Genesis, and I think there are a ton of fascinating topics to explore in this book. We'll start out with one today. You know, one of the great question marks, culturally speaking, is the relationship between, you know, science and the Bible. And the issue usually gets framed as an either-or choice. Either, you know, you believe the Bible or you believe in science, and they're pitted against each other as, like, irreconcilably different. And... As best I can tell, that's that's a misnomer. You know, it's a false binary because science and theology. It seems to me they're asking and answering different questions. I mean, science is able to tell us uh, how the universe runs. You know, what it looked like in the past and and what it looks like today, and and how how that all came to be. Whereas the Bible tells us not only how, but why it came into being. Why is there something rather than nothing? You know, what is the purpose of the universe? And and significantly, like, what is our purpose? Why are we here? And so um, I'll try and unpack that a little bit more, how I don't think a, a faithful reading means that you have to accept one and reject the other. Uh, but to begin, let's remember, what what is science theory, you know, primary explanation for how the universe came into being. And we talked about this before. It's utterly fascinating that 14 billion years ago, all the mass of the visible universe was contained in a spot the size of a period at the end of a sentence. It was an infinitely dense, dimensionless point. And then what happened? It, you know, exploded, right? And physicists like Brett, who has helped me some on this sermon, uh, can claim that we can go back to, to the very beginning moments of that explosion to 10 to the negative 43rd power seconds. That is a decimal point with 42 zeros in a one second after the Big Bang took place. And ever since then, you know, after the explosion, the universe has been expanding at an incredible rate of speed. Now, once the temperature from that explosion began to drop, the nuclei and atoms, namely hydrogen and helium, began to form matter, which then began to coalesce into galaxies under the force of gravity. Uh, Five billion years uh, ago, our sun was formed as a recoalescence of energy. Then four billion years ago, the earth was formed. And you say, well, how is the moon formed? Well, a giant meteorite the size of Mars hit the earth with a glancing blow and tore off a huge chunk of the earth and, and formed the moon. At least that's what the theory holds. Now, whether or not you, you agree with that theory or not, do you know who came up with it? Who actually came up with the Big Bang Theory? And it, it turns out it was this Belgian Catholic priest by the name of George Lumetra, who was also a scientist, and if you look and, and really do any kind of study of history, you know that most of the prominent historians, I mean, not historians, but scientists, uh, you know, they, they were Christians. They came, they came out of the Christian tradition. And interestingly enough, when he proposed this theory back in the 1920s, it was largely, you know, who was against the theory primarily? It was his atheistic fellow scientists who were very uncomfortable with the idea that there was a beginning such as the Big Bang, some prime mover, something that had to have caused the explosion at the beginning. It was far easier for an atheist scientist to believe that the universe was simply eternal and has always existed because then you don't have to account for a beginning. So yes, science is helping tell us sort of 
what it looked like then. Theology is, in the Bible, is telling us, you know, why did it happen then? Why did it happen at all? Why are we here? Why is life important? Why, why is life worth living? Why, why is it that we spend the overwhelming majority of money in our, cult, in our, in our country on end-of-life care as far as, you know, med- medical care is concerned? Why is, why is it that we cling so carefully and, and, and feverishly to life? And, you know, it's those kinds of questions that affect us more on a day-to-day basis than even the, the how questions. And, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that we can focus on some more of those as the series goes on. But let's start out Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll pray. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Let's pray. Lord, you are a great and awesome creator. Uh, When we consider the vastness of the universe, uh, full of its unmistakable beauty, we just feel so small in comparison, and we are in awe of you, such a maker. And so speak to us, Lord, here at the very beginning of your Bible. Please give us a a deeper and greater appreciation for your work of creation, uh, a greater appreciation for, for you as the creator, and help us to know how we fit into him. Give us Give us a sense of, of our purpose and, and give us more of the fullness of life that can only be found in you through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, Genesis doesn't begin in, in a, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It, it doesn't start in another classic manner, you know, once upon a time. Instead, it just has this very blanket, in the beginning statement. And that, that statement is extremely familiar to us. I mean, even if somebody doesn't know anything about the Bible, they, uh, they know something about Genesis 1-1. But let me share some, something you, you may not be aware of, you may not know. So in the beginning, we read, God created the heavens and the earth. But it could have been, it can be translated quite differently. Like, oh, when he created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, what is the picture in your mind's eye that you have when you hear that verse? I mean, usually for us as modern people, it's this picture. We see a blue globe in the sky, you know, set apart against, you know, the blackness of space, like the heavens and the earth. That's what is in our mind's eye. That, of course, is not in the mind's eye of an ancient Hebrew who didn't have satellites. Um, And in fact, you know, the word that is translated, the Hebrew word here for heaven, is most frequently translated simply as as sky. And the word for earth that we translate it, you know, into earth, is actually the word, that word is most frequently translated into land. You know, it, it, it doesn't mean the globe, and, and the sky, the heavens, doesn't mean, you know, the far reaches of space. It, it just means the sky and the land. And, and it's very possible that's the way they would have read it. In the beginning, God made the sky and the land. And that's kind of the header of this whole section. Then it goes on to, to describe it in greater detail. Verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. The Hebrew words actually the rhyme here. 
And uh, Dave, Dave is smiling because you might even remember it from your Hebrew class. But the word, the word is, do you remember what it is, Dave? It's tohu vabohu, um, formless and empty. Tohu vabohu. In English, we might say the, the, the land was wild and wasted. Um, in, in other words, the land was not ordered and the land was not inhabited. And that was a very common way for ancient people to describe to describe the pre-creation state of things. It was not ordered. It was uninhabited. It was chaotic. It was wild. It was wasted. And we go into verse 2, the second half of verse 2, and darkness covered the sur- source, uh, sorry, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Now, what in the world is, are the watery depths? Have you ever asked yourself that? Uh, m- more than likely, what's being described is, a, again, a, a dark, uh, chaotic ocean. That is there. And where, what is happening above the chaotic ocean, verse 2, it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And so there in that chaotic space without purpose or order, there in the, the, the darkness, there God is present. And he's going to, in the next series of verses, over the next series of days, going to speak order and life into this chaos. And we're going to cover that over the next week of what are these creation days. Um, but yeah, he's going to, he is there, he's, and he's going to form it into something ordered and beautiful. One of the things that stands out to me about the creation story, and I wonder if you've noticed this before, because I think it, for most of us, we don't notice it. And that is, when you listen carefully to the text, the text assumes the existence of pre-existent material, doesn't it? You know, if anybody were to ask the question, well, where did that raw material came from? The answer would, of course, be from God. But, but that's not the story's preoccupation. You know, it says we, we have this, you know, we have the earth that was formless and empty. We have the ocean that was chaotic and dark. It, it's just there in verse 2. And the, the Bible is not very interested. It's not preoccupied, paid, uh, preoccupied with telling us how it got there. It's much more interested in the miraculous transformation of the empty and the wasted into the formed, beautiful cosmos. Um, likewise, it's also not interested in satisfying our curiosities about other parts of the, the created order. Like, it never tells us where the angels came from when they were created. It never tells us where the, the demons came from and they were created, or Satan. It's not interested in those origins, uh, nor is it interested in the question, I mean, the, the greatest question of all is, well, where did God come from? You know, he's, he's just there in the beginning, you know? And that's what a pre- precocious five-year-old child is always going to ask you, ask their mom and dad, you know, where did God come from? And, you know, and the parents are going to say, well, he, he always existed. Right? That's what, he always existed, little Johnny, little Susie. But how does something always exist? How does something exist and never begin? And you, you start to try and wrap your mind around that, and you're like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes we'll give an answer and say, well, it's because God is outside of space and time, and so that's how he, how he could have been there in the beginning. And that's not a bad answer. You know, ever since Einstein's theory of general relativity, uh, Einstein showed how space and time are bound to matter and energy. You know, that's how gravity works. Matter bends space and time. 
And thus, when God created matter and energy, he necessarily created the space and time they inhabit. And if, if you believe that God is outside of his creation, then when he created space and time that contains matter, he, he must have, in some sense, existed outside of, of space and time, whatever that means. <laughs> whatever that means. And so, you know, it's a fascinating oh, rabbit uh, trail to rabbit hole to jump into or, or, or trail to go off on, you know, um, where does the universe end? If the universe did, you know, have this explosion and it's ex- if you can imagine it just expanding out like a balloon in three dimensions, it's going on and on and on. And when you get your mind to the edge of that balloon, well, what's on the outside of that balloon? <laughs> you know, is it is it a fourth dimensional uh, a space that you know, math, ma- mathematicians tell us? You know, in theory, it, it may be out there. You know, um, see, our, our minds think there must be an end, and there must be something beyond what that is, and yet it it's hard to it's hard to actually say. Um, I I'm going to go back to little Johnny or Susie when they ask you where did God come from, you you might reply this way. You might reply by saying, what's amazing about God is he, he's, he's like us, but he's not like us. He, he's unlike anything or anybody we know because he has no beginning and he has no end. Like we have birthdays when we begin and we have funerals when we end. But the Bible calls God everlasting, eternal. And according to Genesis, he was already there. He, and he was there coming into this wild, chaotic lump of land, sky, and sea where he decides to speak. Let there be light. And there, there's light, there's life, because he is an eternal fountain of life. I don't know if they'll, how they'll respond to that answer, but it seems like a good one to me. Before moving on, let me tell you a quick story. Pictured here is the Northern Irish uh, mathematician, um, bioethicist John Lennox. Uh, Lennox is a brilliant guy. He was trained at Oxford and Cambridge. He's a devout Christian who writes a lot about the intersection of faith and science. Uh, he speaks all over the world, and he was actually at ASU a few years ago, and his topic was, like, what well, was faith science? How do they work together? And he made this really interesting point. He said a lot of scientists he, who he speaks with who, who are not theists, who don't believe in God, assume that when he uses the word God, it, it's sort of a, a God of the gaps. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? Like, well, in, in other words, when ancient people saw lightning in the sky and they couldn't explain why that happens, to fill in the gap of their knowledge, they said, well, that must be, you know, the, that's God. That's, there's this God of lightning and there's this God of thunder. I can't explain it, but... So God did it. Um, and, and interesting, like those ancient cultures who had a God of the gaps also said, you don't want to look into lightning very closely because you'll end up um, offending that God. And so, there, you know, science actually doesn't come out of, of those like ancient, say, Greek worldviews. Uh, it, it actually comes later with the Christian tradition. Um, but, but as science advances... I'm kind of getting off track there. As science advances, it, fill, it fills in those gaps. And so your need for God, as we have more and more science, the, the God of the gaps, he just shrinks and shrinks, and there's less and less need for God. 
And so uh, John Lennox is like, look, if that is your understanding of God, then yes, science and faith, they are pitted against each other. You have to choose when science offers an alternative, you know, for your, for your God placeholder. But the thing is, that's not how most of the great scientists ever thought of, of the equation. Like when, when Newton discovered the law of gravity, he didn't say, oh, marvelous, I've got a scientific explanation. I don't need God anymore. No, what Newton said was, what a, mar- what, what a marvelous God to do it in this way. Because the more he understood of the universe, the more he admired the genius of God, the God who did it that way. And, and so Lennox is making the point that the that the two are, are truly complementary. I mean, he gave this illustration too. He said, that's how our mind works. Like if you're studying engineering and you look into the motor of a Formula One you know, race car, a Ferrari, you know, your knowledge of engineering actually serves to increase your appreciation for the engine that Lewis Hamilton is driving with a Formula One car. Like the greater, and in the same way, the greater you know science, your, the greater your appreciation for the designer himself. And that's why, you know, the early um, scientific discoveries mostly came out of the Christian tradition. Uh, he made one other phenomenal point, and he made actually several others, but, you know, Lennox, as I said, he's from Northern Ireland, and so being from the UK, uh, British people, they love tea, right? They, and so he uses a, a tea illustration. He says, when I put my tea kettle on on the stove to heat up some water. Um, why is the water boiling? And he said, well, there's a scientific explanation for that because the heat energy from the burner and the subsequent flame is being conducted through the copper base of the kettle and the molecules of the water are getting agitated and they're mo- moving and thus, and, and thus, you know, the water, that's why, it, that's why it is boiling. And then he says, nonsense. The reason that it's boiling is because I want a cup of tea. And he's making a, a profound point like, that actually two explanations are necessary for, for the boiling of the water, not one. There's a scientific explanation, and then there's a, an explanation in what we might call uh, intention. You know, you know. And so the Bible gives us God's intention for creation. And I want to co- cover that more um, before we close. This question is an important one. If we're going to know anything about his intention... We need to know, what was God doing before the creation of the world? Now, you may think that there's no way we could possibly answer this question. But in fact, we do. Um, It's from the book of uh, John. Genesis doesn't answer it for us. It's not interested in what was God doing. You know, it doesn't tell us, you know, was he just chilling? But Jesus explicitly answers the question in John chapter 17 verse 25, with these words. Jesus said, before the creation of the world, Father, you loved me. Before, so before Genesis 1, 1, 2, before God ever created, before God ever made a world, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, there was a father who was loving a son. And, and that is, that's what was going on. This, this relationship of well, we would call it intertrinitarian love between the persons of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like, we don't want people to just believe in a generic, least common denominator kind of God. We want them to believe in a multi-person uh, God who is 
three united in one love. And there's another verse in John's gospel where he describes this, this even better. He says in John 1.18, later in John 1, that the Son is from, or another way of putting it, or in the bosom of the Father. That's an ancient way of, of describing it. And bosom's not a word that we use very often anymore, is it? Let me use this illustration. Say, for instance, that you're lying on your, your bed or your couch, um, just lying there on your side. How many people are there in the world who, who could you know, come up to you, lie down you know, in front of you, uh, lay their head against your chest as they're lying, you know, with their body stretched out beside you. How many people would you feel comfortable doing that with? I mean, my answer is seven, no, no six. <laughs> Five kids, one wife, we're getting the numbers here. Uh, but in reality, it's only, it's only one because my five kids are old, too old to do that. They're not going to lay down uh, beside me any longer, sadly, and put their head on my chest. There's only one human being in the world that I'd feel comfortable with. Even if my best friend came up and said, hey, Brad, can I lay down with my head? And I'm like, no, absolutely not. You know, if he tries, I'm going to hit him. Um, I, would not feel, I would not feel comfortable with that. So, so what Jesus does is to help us somehow conceive of this pre this pre-eternal, pre-creation relationship between the Father and the Son, he uses this simple and beautiful metaphor. He says, Father, my, my head was always on your bosom. Why does that matter? Well, because it's telling us the, the, the way that we should read Genesis 1.1. Um, Genesis 1.1, we, sh- we should not read it in this way. We should not read it that in the beginning, God was kind of bored and he was all alone, and there wasn't anybody to play with or talk to, so he created human beings, little peons, who would then worship him and boost his self-esteem. That is how a lot of people think uh, of uh, God and, and humans. As uh, n- No, that's not what you have in Genesis 1-1 are the fingerprints of the Trinity. Verse 1, you have Elohim, the Hebrew word for God, God created. Verse 3, the Spirit is there who is hovering over the dark waters. And verse 4, the spoken, creative word that we read about at the beginning of John 1, that Aaron read a moment ago, bringing light and life into the, to the cosmos. Christians have always, from the beginning, seen the faint outlines of the Trinity here. And so what is God doing? You have a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit doing creation together. Like saying, let's make a world together. Let's make a universe together. Let's allow the fountain of our shared love to spill out into, into the formless, into the voidless, into the wild and wasted. You know, let our shared love spill out and make it beautiful. Let's expand the circle of our, our three-person connection. Let's expand it. Let's expand the ring and make it bigger. You know, what do I mean by the ring? Well, we've all gone to a party or to a social situation where we walked in and we felt completely on the outside, right? You walk in, you, you, you don't feel, um, you feel out of place. You don't know many people. It's that terribly awkward feeling when you have no one to talk with and you're just, you're a wallflower uh, on the outside. On, on some rare occasions, people who are circled up in a ring will sort of step back 
and, and like, invite you in, right? It, they, they'll, they'll bring you in. Uh, they're having a great time. They're laughing. They're telling jokes. They're telling stories. They see you, and they're like, come, and we'll make you part of the jokes. We'll, we'll make you part of the story. Uh, and they not only let you in, but they take tremendous interest in you. And that is the why of creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is saying, come, let, let's, bring, let's bring more into this with us. He lets us into their, into their life. Mm. Okay, two, two implications or two take-home thoughts that I'd like to leave you with, and then we'll conclude. First, I think that this understanding of creation proves something that nearly all of us know in our hearts, like regardless of what your religion is or regardless of where you are in your faith, it explains why underneath you know that love is the foundation of the universe. It is. That is very different than the, the biggest thinkers of the last 200 years, right? Nietzsche, Foucault, Foucault, Marx, all brilliant minds of the last 200 years, all who did not believe in God basically believed that the fundamental reality of human life is the will to power. Because if there is no God, and there is no justice, and, and there, is no, there is no such thing as love, love is just a chemical concoction in our brains, then all we have is the will to power. That humans are embroiled in one big power struggle, and therefore the good life is to be had by those who are able to amass strength and power for their own benefit, be it through political or other revolutionary means. Uh, we, I just think that like, we know in our hearts that that, is, that isn't true. But you know, if you look out today, you see in our world how secular ideologies are just, they're being exposed as being insufficient to counter the violent ideologies that demean human dignity and encroach on human rights. Um, and, and Christianity is, is like, no, it, it is God's love that is at the center of the universe. And at the center of the world is actually a cross where God's love is displayed in weakness and, and in suffering. And so that's where it begins. That's where it is headed. That's why, uh, that's why love you know, is most important of all. And then secondly, the second take home, do you recognize, you probably don't, but do you, any chance you recognize this image? This was taken by the Voyager 1 spacecraft that I forget, did it leave, the United, leave Earth like in the 1970s? This was 1990. Uh, astronomer Carl Sagan asked NASA to point one of the cameras on Voyager 1, Voyager 1 back to Earth and take a photograph of our planet from a distance of 4 billion miles away. I think those may be the rings of, uh, of like, not Neptune, Uranus that is shooting it through. And you've probably seen this picture before because it's an iconic photo, but the resulting image shows the Earth is just this little insignificant speck in the midst of a sea of empty blackness. And some say, you know, because the universe is so big, it's, it's impossible to believe in a God who would care about us here on Earth. And they point out that 99.9999999% of the universe is absolutely inhospitable to any kind of life as we know it, at least right now. And so Sagan goes on to make a video, and he's doing the voiceover for the video as we're looking back at the little speck of Earth, and he says, <clears throat> The posturings of our self-imagined importance, 
the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by the tiny point of pale light demonstrating our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. Our obscurity in this vastness demonstrates that we humans are very, very, very alone. And I'm here to tell you that we're not. <laughs> I know that we are not. And you look up, you look up into the sky and you say, oh, the universe is empty. No. You look up into the sky and you see its beauty. You look up into the sky and you see it's glorious. You, have you ever looked through the Hubble telescope and seen the colors and the, and the shapes and the sizes of the distant galaxies? Have you not been, been struck by the glory of it all? Science shows us how it best thinks that it happened. What an incredible creator he is who did, did it. And scripture shows us that the most foundational thing about God is that he is a father with a son's head next to his chest. And that intimacy of eternal love uh, is what spills out. And as that intimacy of eternal love is what he wants to bring everybody in, you know, near to him uh, to share in it together. Amen.